Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for being there. Thank you that you're not silent. That you have spoken to us in your word. You have given us that which we need to know about you, to know about us, to know how we are to live, how we are to worship and honor you, and so much, much more could be said. In fact, when we read and study your word, so often we find our, ourselves in the midst of a vast ocean. It matters not what particular truth we may be studying, whether it has to do with some of your attributes or maybe some of the things required of us as to how we're to live and not only in our own reading and studying but as we read and study other men as we said before it's just a vast vast ocean of truth so much so much can be said as you know my God often when I'm studying in preparation to teach and preach thy word I often find myself saying wish I could remember all of this. And we have to try to select somewhat of some intelligence, what we think would be good for the congregation. And even then, it seems like that all we have done is taken the picture that all of the pieces of the puzzle that would fit together to make it a beautiful scene that all we've done is just taken apart all the pieces. But we pray that you might take the truth of the Scriptures and the truth of your word, and as we try to expound upon it, that you would apply it to the hearts of each individual and portray the picture to the soul of each one according to their need. We know that you can do that. And we need you to do that. For you know how to administer what is needed to each soul. Some souls or hearts may need to be open to receive the word. Some whose hearts may be open already may be of dull of hearing. And as we all can say, there's always room for growth. We do ask that you would be with faithful men who stand to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. That you would raise up more faithful men 
and those who are unfaithful that you would remove them off the scene so that they would not be a detriment to your people. Nevertheless, thy will be done. We pray for those that rule over us that you might move upon their hearts and souls in such a way that they would rule over us for good and not for evil, that we might ever be blessed to lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And whereas there may be wicked leaders or just ignorant leaders that do not know the right way to lead, <clears throat> that if they are devising plans that would be harmful for us, that you would intervene and turn it upon their own pate. Again, thy will be done. Now bless us as we look into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Coming back to Galatians chapter 6, we looked last Lord's Day at the first two <clears throat> verses. And we want to take up in verse 3, we're basically looking at this whole section of the first five verses, and I'll read those verses again to kind of set it in its context. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Looking at this verse 3, uh, just in and of itself, the worst thing that a person can do is to think that he's strong and spiritual and that he will never fall. You remember in 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, Paul addressed this very thing there in, <clears throat> in verses 11 and 12. He said, Now all these things happen unto them. That's talking about some things that took place in the wilderness and where God killed several thousand of people for murmuring and complaining. So you children need to realize that murmuring and complaining with your parents is a bad, bad thing. It's not a good thing to it's not a good thing to murmur with your parents and murmur with those in authority over you. <clears throat> now all these things, verse eleven, happened unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now notice this. Wherefore let him that thinketh that he standeth take heed lest he fall. Like I said, the worst thing we can do is think that we're, we're strong. And we, we won't fall. Too often, people... We'll learn a few things about the Scriptures. And they think themselves to be wise. And they think they know quite a bit. Still in 1 Corinthians in chapter 8. Now, verse 1. 
Basically, we just want to get the last part of that in verse 2, but I'll read for all of verse 1. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge, but then knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing as he ought to know. Too often we run across individuals that do a little studying in the Word of God and they really think they know a lot. And that's a danger sometimes of of new converts. They come to the Scriptures, they study a little bit, and all of a sudden they think that uh, they've got a handle on everything and they hit the ground, look like they're running at 100 miles an hour, and in a few months, uh, you find that it's not that way. <laughs> it's easy. To, it's easy to do, and it's easy to uh, when you see someone in error. And if you are right, it's easy to point out their mistakes, and sometimes do it in such a way that. All you're doing is talking about them behind their back instead of helping them. And then sometimes when we try to help them, if we're not careful, uh, we blunder that and we do not go to them with the right spirit thinking that we've got all the answers when oftentimes when we see a situation and we find out all the details about it, uh, we realize that it's not near what we thought it was. But in reality, we need to always remember John fifteen five when Jesus said, For without me, you can do nothing. For without me, you can do nothing. Whatever we have, whether we have worldly possessions, whether we have good health, whether we have insight into the Word of God, whatever we have, it's only because God has given it unto us. We cannot brag about anything. In reality, we are nothing. In this verse, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, it says, For if if any man think himself to be something, when he is nothing. When he is nothing. This word is often translated, no man. No man. In fact, in uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 17, From henceforth let no man trouble me. That's that word for nothing. Let no man trouble me. Let's look at a few other passages. It's 88 times, I think, used this way in Scripture. You can relax. We're not going to look at all of those. <laughs> but I do want us to get a, a look, look, look at Matthew chapter 8 first. I find one of the best ways to understand how God wants us to know what something means is to run it by in the Word of God. After all, his words inspired what I say is just comments on it. <laughs> Matthew chapter 8, verse 4, Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man. That's that word, nothing. See thou tell no man. In Mark, in Mark chapter 5,
Well, I've put down something wrong. No, it's uh, Mark 26. And had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. Now, that's a frustrating situation, isn't it? You have a sickness, you go to all of the doctors that you can find, and you spend all the money that you have for all of the doctors. And the more you spend, the less money you have, and you're not, you're not any better. In fact, going to the doctors and all that you've done, you've actually gotten worse. That's a frustrating situation, isn't it? Well, that's this word, nothing. She had what she was nothing better. In Romans chapter 12, Verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Chapter 13 of Romans, verse 7 or verse 8. Oh, no man anything. And then in James chapter 1. Verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and so on. So we see here, if any man thinketh himself to be something, when he is nothing. Now I like what A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, had to say about this. He said, thinks he is a big number, being nothing at all. And then he gave the Greek tense here that is neuter singular pronoun. And then Robertson said, he is really zero. Really zero. If a man thinketh himself to be something when he is really zero. I don't remember the exact uh, evaluation or the exact number, but uh, I read or heard years ago, I think I heard this, and I don't know that I've ever taken the time to verify it or not, might be a good Google search to do sometime, but when a person is dead and he has deteriorated away to all that is left is the ashes of him, the mineral contents of his human body is worth less than a quarter. That's how much we're worth. We're just a, a pile of dirt. And worse than that, we're a pile of sinful dirt. I often think that we're not only zero, we're negative, we're in the hole. And really we are because we're born into the world a sinner. We're not born with a blank slate. We're not born at zero. We've already, we've already sinned in our mother's womb. We were conceived in sin, David tells us in Psalm 51. So when we sit back and 
think about ourselves, we need to realize that we're really, we don't have any right to think ourselves to be somewhat. And such a person is self-deceived. For when a man thinketh himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. The word uh, here indicates that he is a mind misleader. He has misled his mind. He thinks he's something when really he's not. He's deluded. He's actually led himself astray. When he deceiveth himself here, it's the only time this word is used. He, and I like that, he's a mind misleader. <laughs> a mind misleader. He's misled his mind. And sad to say, I think we uh, find too many folks like that too often. But we need to be careful that we are not one of such. We need to realize that pride is always condemned in the Scriptures and that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. You know, we live in a world of self-esteem. Well, we don't need... We don't need self-esteem. You know, uh, the modern education system is let a child express himself. Well, sinners don't need to express themselves. They need to be disciplined. They need to learn to discipline themselves. We're not talking about using the talents that God has given them. Naturally, they should use the talents that God has given us. We all should do that. We, all, we also need to keep it in, in proper balance before God. Much more could be said about verse 3, but let's go on to verse 4. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for every man shall bear his own burden. So while we are to bear one another's burden, each person should also exercise himself unto godliness and holiness to the glory of God so that he bears his own burden. This Greek word to bear in this verse is different from the Greek word to bear in, the first, in verse 2. In other words, when it says that we're to bear our own burden, that's different from when we are to bear one another's burden. You remember to bear one another's burden is the idea of standing under the weight of something. I was talking to uh, Brother Guess earlier today and he asked me what I was going to be preaching on and I told him and and he told me a story about his uh, uh, pastor when he was a child. And he was in World War II and uh, a good friend of his, I don't think it was his brother, I forgot, I forgot, anyway, uh, they were, he and this man were together and the other man said, I just can't go any further. Said, you go on. Said, uh, if you stay here with me, you're going to be captured. And said, I, I just can't go any further. Uh, just leave me and let me be captured. And Brother Holder, that was the preacher's name, said, I'm strong. Said, give me your backpack. Said, I'll carry yours too. And so... Uh, he bore his brother's burden. That's the idea of verse 1. But in verse 2, 
Like I said, we have a, a different word. This word for burden has the idea of an invoice. As with part of a freight. In other words, figuratively, it carries the idea of a task or a burden in that sense. It's only used five times in four different verses, so we'll, we'll just look at all the other three verses. Well, it's also in verse 5. In other words, every man shall bear his own burden. In other words, he's to carry his own freight, you might say. But look in Matthew chapter 11. If you know your Bible, you probably already know the context that we're going to in Matthew 11. Matthew 11.30 For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My freight is light. It's not the idea of the other Burden is this burden. My way of living, we might say, is light. In chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 4, talking about the Pharisees, for they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders. <coughs> but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So you can see that the two words, though they're different in meaning, they can have some uh, interchangeableness with them. Let's look at Luke chapter 11 where we find the word used there twice. Luke eleven forty six. 46. Woe unto you lawyers, for ye bade men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. And I'll read again from A.T. Robertson where he said that this word is the old word for ship cargo and Christ calls His burden light though the terms uh, those of the Pharisees heavy meant for other people. The terms are not always kept indistinct though Paul makes a distinction here because of the difference in the word in verse word burden in verse 2 compared to verses 5 and 6 or 5 yes 5 and, and verse 5 now I'm going to run the risk of uh, bearing uh, exercising your patience I'm going to do a lengthy reading from uh, McLaren, Alexander McLaren, when on his exposition of the scriptures on Galatians six five, with regard to, to burden bearing. And the more I read it, the more I really appreciated what he had to say. And I didn't know of how I could take this and condense it down. And so, unless I should uh, do it some injustice, I thought I would run the risk of exercising your patience in reading it. It's pretty lengthy. 
He said, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For every man shall bear his own burden. The injunction in the former of these verses appear at first sight to be inconsistent with the statement of the latter. In other words, first it says you bear one another's burden, then it says you have to bear your own burden. He said that appears to be inconsistent. But Paul has a way of setting side by side two superficially contradictory clauses in order that attention may be awakened and that we may make an effort to apprehend the point of reconciliation between them. So, for, for instance, you remember he puts in one sentence and couples together by a four these two state sayings. Work out your own salvation. It is God that worketh in you. In other words, he gives an example. It is good. Work out your own salvation. For it is God that worketh in you. Taking two uh, seemingly opposites and putting them together to for emphasis. So here, and that's by the way, if you remember Philippians two twelve. So here he has been exhorting the Galatian Christians to restore a fallen brother. That is one case in which the general commandment, bear ye one another's burden, is applicable. I cannot enter, I cannot here enter on the intervening verses by which he glides from the one to the other of these two thoughts which I have coupled together. In other words, he said, I'm not going to be talking about everything in between the two verses. <clears throat> uh, but, I may just point out in a word the outline of his course of thought. Bear ye one another's burdens, says he. And then he thinks, what is it that keeps men from bearing each other's burdens? Being swallowed up with themselves and especially being conceited about their own strength and goodness. And so he goes on. If a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And what is the best cure for all these fancies inside us of how strong and good we are? To look at our work with an impartial and rigid judgment, it is easy for a man to plume himself on being good and strong and great. But let him look at what he has done and try that by a high standard and that will knock the conceit out of him. Or if his work stands the, stands the test, then he shall have rejoicing in himself and not by comparing himself with other people. Two blacks do not make a white. And we are not to heighten the luster of our the luster of our own whiteness by comparing it with our neighbor's blackness. Take your act for what it is worth, apart altogether from what other people are. Do not say, God I thank thee that I am not as other men are, or even as this publican. But look to yourself. There is an occupation with self which is good and is a help to brotherly sympathy. And so the apostle has worked around, you see, to almost an opposite thought from the one with which he started, bear ye one another's burden. Yes, but a man's work is his own and nobody else's. And a man's character is his own and nobody else's. So every man shall bear his own burden. The statements are not contradictory. They, com they complete each other. They are the north and the south poles. And between them 
is the rounding orb of the whole truth. So then let me point out that. And then he's going to point out three different points. One is there are burdens which can be shared and there are burdens which cannot. And then his second major point is Jesus Christ is the burden bearer for both sorts of burdens. And then his last point, Christ carrying our burdens binds us to carry our, our brothers. So the first point is, there are burdens that can be shared and there are burdens which cannot. And so he takes... First of all, the burdens that can be shared. And he says, Let us take the case from which the whole context has arisen. Paul was exhorting the Galatians, as I explained in reference to their duty to our fallen brother. And he speaks of him, according to our version, as overtaken in a fault. Now, that is scarcely his idea, I think. The phrase, as it stands in our Bibles, suggests that Paul is trying to minimize the gravity of the man's offense. But just in proportion as he minimized its gravity, would he weaken his exhortation to restore him. But what he is really doing is not to make as little as possible of the sin, but to make as much of it as is consistent with the truth. The word overtaken suggests that some sin, like a tiger in a jungle, springs upon a man and overpowers him by the suddenness of the assault. The word so rendered may perhaps be represented by some such phrase as discovered. Or if I may use a colloquialism, if a man be caught red-handed, that's the idea. And Paul does not use the weak word fault, but a very, but a very much stronger one, which means stark, staring, sin. He is supposing a bad case of inconsistency and is not palliating, that is, he's not softening it at all. Here is a brother who has had an unblemished reputation and all at once the curtain is thrown aside behind which he is working some wicked thing. And there the culprit stands, with the bull's eyesight, uh, with the bull's eye light flashed upon him, ashamed and trembling. Paul says, "If you are a spiritual man, there is the irony there of the graver sort. Show your spirituality by going and lifting him up, and trying to help him." When he says. Restore such a one, he uses an expression which is employed in other connections in the New Testament, such as for mending the broken uh, meshes of a net, or repairing any kind of damage, or setting the fractured bones of a limb. And that is what the spiritual man has to do. He is to show the validity of his claim to live on high by stooping down to the man bemired and broken-legged in the dirt. We have come across people who chiefly show their own purity by their harsh condemnation of others' sins. One has heard of women, who, uh, women so very virtuous that they would rather hound a fallen sister to death than try to restore her. And there are saints so extremely saintly that they will not touch the leper to heal him for fear their own hands being ceremoniously defiled. 
Paul says, bear ye one another's burdens, and especially take a lift of each other's sin. I need not remind you how the same command applies in relation to pecuniary, that is, financial distress, narrow circumstances, heavy duties, sorrows, and all the ills that flesh is heir to. These can be borne by sympathy, by true loving outgoing of the heart, and by the rendering of such practical help as the circumstances require. Now he turns his attention to those burdens that cannot be borne by any but by one's own self. Of that he says, There is the awful burden of personal existence. It is a solemn thing to be able to say, I. And that carries with it this, that after all sympathy, after all nestling closeness of affection, after the tenderness exhibited, uh, the tenderest exhibition of identity of feeling, and of swift godlike readiness to help each of us live our, our lives alone. Like the inhabitants of the islands of the Greek archipelago, we are able to wave signals to the next island and sometimes send a boat with provisions and succor, but we are parted with echoing straits between us throw. I don't know where he's quoting that from. Every man, after all, lives alone, and society is like the material things round about us, which are all comprehensible because the atom that composed them, the atoms, plural, excuse me, that composed them are not in actual contact, but separated by slender or substantial films of isolating air. Thus there is even in the sorrows which we can share with our brethren, and in all the burdens which we can help to bear, an element which cannot be imparted. The heart knoweth its own bitterness, and neither stranger nor other intermeddleth with the deepest fountains of its joy. Again, there is the burden of responsibility which can be shared by none. A dozen soldiers may be turned out to make a firing party to shoot the mutineer. And no man knows who fired the shot, but one man did fire it. What he means by that, children, is they'd have, say, five or six men on the uh, shooting the weapon, but only one man had a real bullet. The others were like blanks. So, you, But the man didn't know what the real bullet was. And he said he likens that, that our own responsibility. <clears throat> and however there may have been companions, it was his rifle that carried the bullet. And his finger that pulled the trigger. In other words, a group of people may be together and you're all doing something together, but uh, you can't use the excuse, well, I was with them and they made me do it. I did my own sin. And I'm sure each one of us can think of the past of some incident when we were caught up in the moment with a group of others. Children will do that sometimes when they're aggravating another child. All the children will gang up on the one. Well, you're responsible. You can't say, well, I'm just going along with them. That's what he's talking about here. When he said it was the, fight, the rifle that carried the bullet and it was his finger that pulled the trigger. We say 
The woman that thou gavest me tempted me, and I did eat. Or we say, My natural appetites for which I am not responsible, but thou who madest me art, drew me aside and I fell. In other words, well, that's just the way that God made me. No, you're still responsible. And you, nobody can bear that but you. Or we may say, it was not I, it was the other boy. And then there it rises up in our hearts, a veiled, a veiled form. And from it, its majestic lips comes. Thou art the man. And our whole being echoes assent. Mea cuppa. Mea maxima cuppa. In other words, that's the Latin for my fault. My exceeding great fault. No man can bear that burden. And then closely connected with, that is no other man. Then closely connected with responsibility, there is another the burden of the inevitable consequences of transgression, not only away yonder in the future when all human bonds of, comp uh, of companionship shall be broken, and each man shall give account of himself to God. But here and now, as in the immediate context, the Apostle tells us, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The effects of our evil deeds come back to roost. And they never make a mistake as to where they should, should alight. If I have sown, I and no one else will gather. No sympathy will prevent tomorrow's headache after tonight's debauch. And nothing that anybody can do will turn the sleuth hounds off the scent. Though they may be slow-footed, they may have sure noses and deep mouth fangs. If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. And if thou scornest, thou alone shall bear it. So there are burdens which can and burdens which cannot be borne. Now his second point, that Jesus Christ is the burden bearer for both sorts of burdens. Anyway, I thought that first part was a good summary of the difference in bearing your own burdens and someone, bearing someone else's burdens. Now, second point, Jesus Christ is the burden bearer for both sorts of burdens. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, not only as spoken by his lips, but as set forth in the pattern of his life. We have then to turn to him and to think of him as burden bearer in even a deeper sense than the <coughs> excuse me than the psalmist had discerned who magnified God as he who daily beareth our burdens. Christ is the burden bearer of our sins. The Lord hath laid or made to meet upon him the iniquity of us all. The Baptist pointed his lean, ascetic finger at the young Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which beareth, and beareth away, the sin of the world. How heavy the load, how real its pressure, let Gethsemane witness when he clung to human companionship with the unutterable, solemn, and plaintive words, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch, watch with me. He bore the burden of the world's sins, that is, the world of his elect. 
Jesus Christ is the bearer of the burden of the consequences of sin, not only inasmuch as in his sinless humanity he knew by sympathy the weight of the world's sin, that is, the world of his elect, but because in that same humanity he identified himself with us deeper and more wonderful than our plummets, that is, our depths, have at any time long enough to sound the abyss of he took the cup of bitterness which our sins have mixed and drank it all when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Consequences still remain. Thank God that they do. Thou wast a God that forgavest them, and thou didst inflict retribution on their inventions. So outward, the present, the temporal consequences of transgressions are left standing in all their power in order that transgressors may thereby be scourged from their evil and led to forsake the thing that has wrought them such havoc. But the ultimate consequence, the deepest of all separation from God has been borne by Christ and need never be borne by us. I suppose I need not dwell on the other aspect of this burden-bearing of our Lord, how that He, in a very deep and real sense, takes upon Himself the sorrows which we bear in union with and faith on Him. <clears throat> For then the griefs that still come to us when so born are transmitted into light afflictions, which is but for a moment. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. Oh, brethren, you with sad hearts, you with lonely lives, you with cankering, or excuse me, you with carking, that is, distressing or worrying or dying, cares you with pressing heavy duties cast your burden on the christ and he will sustain you and sorrows born in union with him will change their character and the very cross shall be wreathed with flowers jesus bears the burden of that solemn solitude which our personal being lays upon us all. The rest of us stand round, and, as I said, hoist signals of sympathy, and sometimes can stretch a brother's hand out and grasp the sufferer's hand. But their help comes from without. Christ comes in and dwells in our hearts, and makes us no longer alone in the depths of our being, which he fills with the effulgence and peace of his companionship. And so for sin, for guilt, for responsibility, for sorrow, for holiness, Christ bears our burdens. Yes, and when he takes ours on his shoulder, he puts his on ours, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The old mystics used to say, Christ's burden carries him that carries it. It may add a little weight, but it gives power to soar and it gives power to progress. It is like the wings of a bird. It is like the sails of a ship. And then lastly, Christ carrying our burdens binds us to carry our brothers. So fulfill the law of Christ. There is a very biting sarcasm. And as I said about another matter, a grave irony in Paul's use of the word law here. For the whole of the, this epistle has been directed against the Judaizing teachers who were desirous of cramming Jewish law down Christians' throat, 
excuse me, down Galatian throats, and is addressed to their victims in the Galatian churches who have fallen into the trap. Paul turns around on them here and says, You want law, do you? Well, if you will have it, here it is, the law of Christ. Christ's life is our law. Practical Christianity is doing what Christ did. The cross is not only the ground of our hope, but the pattern of our conduct. I might say we'll see more about this in 1 John when we get to that. And Paul says, in effect, the example of Jesus Christ in all its sweep and in all the depths of it is the only motive by which His injunction that I am giving you will ever be fulfilled. Bear you one another's burdens. You will never do that unless you have Christ as the ground of your hope and His great sacrifice as the example for your conduct. For the hindrance that prevents sympathy is self-absorption. And that natural selfishness which is in us all will never be exercised, that is, driven out, and banished from us thoroughly. So, as that we shall be awakened to all the obligations to bear our brother's burdens, unless Christ has dethroned self, and is the Lord of our inmost spirits. We will never do so. Well, I hope he didn't try your patience too much. But I thought he did a good job in explaining all of that and kindly bringing it all together. And I kept trying to figure out a way to make it easier. And the more I kept working on it and kept working on it, I said, well, I can't do any better than... <laughs> Read what he said. So, I hope it was a help to you. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, thank you for your word. And I thank you with men of, that have good ways of explaining things. Acceptable words. May we learn, learn from such. But may we <coughs> never place them above the pure truth of the Holy Scriptures. All I have done in this lengthy reading is substituted my own words by using another man's words. But all of it is based on your word. And often it takes us many words to explain the short, simple statements that you inspired men to write. But I pray, my God, that you always keep us inbound and keep us in check that we never broaden the horizon greater than what the Scriptures teach, nor try to plumb the depths further than what you have stated, nor scale the heights beyond that which you have given for us to look to and to follow. We thank you for once again, bringing our attention to Christian love, of bearing one another's burdens, and so dis disciplining ourselves to live as we ought to live, and realizing and knowing that the only way we can do such is by the power and righteousness that's given to us through the, the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.